Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to Eastern Border. As I mentioned it last time, we watched the series Chernobyl. Didn't do so alone. I watched them from a cultural perspective, but I was here with my friends who are, well, actual scientists. A chemist and a neuroscientist to be exact, but the guys highly skilled in their fields, and then we went through all the possible things Chernobyl could have gotten wrong and could have gotten right. And this episode is about what Chernobyl, the series, got wrong about the whole incident, because, you know, made two episodes about all this stuff. Before I start doing this, let me tell you that the things they got wrong by no means undermine the theme of the show or the whole value of the show as it is highly accurate in most cases and the things that we're going to be talking about today are, well, not as consequential. Some of the things have been played up for dramatic value and in other cases you can clearly tell that they just couldn't have the budget to do it accurately or that it was just too hard for the actors to play out some stuff as they actually happened. But this is as close to reality as you can get with the series, and it is clearly, clearly seen in the show, well, at least from our perspective here on this side of the world, that the authors of the show clearly did show their work, they did a lot of research, and they didn't try to fake anything out, they really tried to be as accurate as they could be. And what we're talking about, the inaccuracies here, they're not from malice, they're mostly from lack of budget, or, you know, cutting some shortcuts, more insecure things or just playing some stuff up for dramatic value. And I'm saying this because these tiny little inconsistencies and these little details is what now is causing the Russian government to say that the series was completely off and that they're gonna make their own better uh, supreme version of the Chernobyl series where a nasty, foul-minded CIA agent is saboturing the whole operation. Which was not the case. If you've heard my previous Chernobyl episodes, then you know that, yeah, it was a systematic fault with the builders, with everyone involved. It was, well, quite much like the events that aspired in the Chernobyl series. 
However, there are some tiny little details that they did get wrong, which can sometimes lead to a wrong impression of the show or the life in the Soviet Union. I'm going to be talking about those today to kind of fix the mistakes uh, that the authors of the series did. However, I love the series and they are highly recommended and that is one of the most accurate depictions of Soviet life and how things went down in general. The mistakes they did basically are uh, understandable in the sense that they wanted to make a good, interesting show and also they just sometimes lack the budget and they're not from our region themselves, therefore, well, they tried their best as to not confuse the watchers or the people acting in it. And the first thing that they even mention on their own podcast as they do it, and I listen to it about how what they got wrong was the fact that everyone speaks to each other with comrade in the place of the first name, like comrade Legasov is in the show. The thing is that, yes, that was the standard form of speech in the Soviet Union. You never just called someone by their surname, it had always been preceded by the name comrade in front of it. However, that was a very formal way of speaking. It's basically a super polite, super serious way of saying, if you're saying, Comrade Legasov, do this and this, that's not how friends speak among each other, not even a polite way, that is a super formal, super serious way. What would actually happen is that they would use the name and patronymical, like Vasily Alexievich. That's how friends politely talk to each other, name, patronymical. And only in serious cases, like in court, or like in very hardcore cases where, you know, when you know that stuff's serious, then you would hear that comrade so-and-so, you know, that stuff happening. Why this was cut is that originally they wanted to use just the surnames, like Ligasov do something something, that would never happen in the Soviet Union, you always had to have comrade before surnames. However, what you would expect is that people just basically use Valery Alexeyevich or Natasya Grigorievna or, or something like that, you know, name patronymical, which is the standard polite way of speaking to your friends in the Soviet Union. And they explained this on the show because apparently it caused the actors playing their roles much confusion because, you know, their role says Comrade Legasov and they know them by their surnames and they're not as used to speak with their patronymicals, so that was cut. It's a very minor detail which, you know, it kind of changes the attitude and the tune of some scenes because everyone is, well, for us, seems to be portrayed super formal there. Which is understandable, yet more of the authentic thing would be nice, but that's really not a big mistake. Things that they did get right is that at the beginning of the show you can see that feeding his cats before hanging himself and he's not using any pet food. He's just using, you know, whatever he's made, scraps or whatever. And that was completely true because it might surprise you, but the Soviet Union had no pet food. At all. Zero. People would just, you know, you would buy bones for soup and then you would make soup out of those bones and then you'd give the bones to the dog. Basically, yeah, the animals just ate the scraps of whatever people eat because there was no specialized pet food. Zero brands, nothing. So that was one of the things that, um, according to their own podcast, their own auditors, their own like experts told them that, no, 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 there is literally zero pet food that Ligasov could have given to his cats because there was no pet food. And finally, one minor detail before we get into the science parts is that uh, some people noticed this, and this is the argument that the Russian government used to criticize the show, is the fact that as they filmed in Lithuania and Ukraine, like uh, Moscow is Kiev, I've been there, so I just noticed a few places, and Chernobyl is Ignalina atom reactor, which by the way was built in the same way as Chernobyl, so it's actually super close, super authentic. But, like, they show these Khrushchev, because those five-story buildings around the places, which stand in for Pripyat. And if you're close enough, not in the main scenes, but uh, in the kind of wider shots, which show the city in general, you can see that some of the windows have been replaced by plastic ones. Well, obviously, it's a modern thing, because people still live in those buildings, and they wanted to modernize them. But at the time, plastic windows would just not be a thing. Everyone would have, like, crappy wooden windows. 
which they actually do take care to show in the internal shots because all the windows from the inside of the building have these wooden windows. One thing though is that, you know, they show a lot of buildings not having been patented properly or everything or stuff like that. Uh, that would be less pronounced, especially in the official buildings, if that would happen in a civilian building more, but they kind of show this Soviet Union still at uh, its might, but still like falling apart and there's a lot of places where just, you know, the paint scraps off the wall and shit. The thing is, that would happen in the places where civilians live, but not in some KGB office or a scientific facility, no, 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 those places would be kept up to notch, because they still had, like, cash to do that. But I guess it was an artistic choice here to show the already collapsing Soviet Union, for whom this Chernobyl is kind of this, you know, lost shot in their own leg. So that was kind of like, it wasn't as demolished, you know, some places did have plastic windows. But that's from the cultural sense, however, from the scientific one, yeah, for this episode I dug up some materials from Western sources who are, like, eager to point out 10 things that Chernobyl did wrong, but there's a problem with them that even those lists get some things off and fall for the very mainstream propaganda from uh, Russia and, well, previously Soviet Union. Because before we get to those parts, let me remind you that I have spoken personally for my episode 10, which was my first Chernobyl episode, with people who were those liquidators, the guys who were up there for 90 seconds, as the series show you. And they tell quite a different story from some of those sites which claim that they know how everything went right. And I guess we'll start with their story too, but um, I'm just gonna go down a list of um, one of the sites that I went through here. And this comes from LiveScience.com which is, a, well, I'm not sure, but it, it looks respectable enough. It looks kind of like a popular science site, kind of shady, kind of not. They have their top 10 list. I'm going to go through with what they say Chernobyl series got wrong, and I'm going to add my comment to each of them, because there are some nice little cases where they obviously haven't bothered to dig through the truth themselves. And I'll be aided with this with my friend Aretz, who is a scientist. He's been on a couple episodes here before on the show, and now we'll just sift through this. I hope you'll like the episode, and again, I highly recommend you watch the series, because this is, uh, well, you know, after making two Chernobyl episodes and, and having a massive reaction in the social media after I posted that I watched the series. Yeah, I now watched the series twice, because I showed it to other people, and, well, just hoping that we'll have something fun here. So, we're going through this article from Live Science, which is 10 times HBO's Chernobyl got the science wrong, and their number one spot is the helicopter crash. The article says, the dramatic scene early on in which a helicopter crashes while attempting to fly over the reactor, apparently due to intense radiation, never happened. But the helicopter video footage taken at the time shows static and distortion generated by the intense radiation field above the reactor core, and there were reports of pilots getting radiation sickness from the sorties. Yes, we checked this out, doubly. The crash itself did never happen, however, the communications went down, and apparently the guys who were piloting this helicopter did get massive radiation sickness afterwards. As far as I get it, they were flying, like, over the core, right? They flew over the exposed radiation core and uh, were pouring in decontaminating acetate mixture, and they did get lethal radiation doses. They died weeks later from radiation sickness. Nonetheless, the helicopter itself didn't crash, but the crew did die just afterwards. And the communications were blacked out. And this is one of the things here, which I need to mention, the fact that what Chernobyl actually did get wrong is in some scenes they played down yes. the effects of everything. Yes, exactly, because the communications were completely 
planked between ground and the helicopter due to the ionization of the air. The crew reported that they were seeing complete static on the screens and heard the same in the headphones. So, yes, that definitely happened. And, uh, yes, as I mentioned, they did die from massive uh, radiation sickness uh, just weeks later. The scene about the robot, which is not mentioned on this list, is actually completely true. Uh, the scene about the robots is completely true, including the one the Germans sent that was supposedly meant for withstanding higher radiation doses. Yes, it's still on the roof and now obviously under the, the, the shield. Yeah, that happened. That happened. And um, point number two in this list is the Bridge of Death, where the Chernobyl creators claimed that everyone died there. The article says the unforgivably late response of the authorities meant the citizens of Pripyat were out in the open after the accident, and some did go to the so-called Bridge of Death near the plant to watch the fire. But apparently there's no evidence that all the people on the bridge died, and no evidence that radiation doses there were so dangerously high. Now this is a complex issue because this and then everyone dies story is a super popular one in the Soviet culture. For example, there are uh, stories of uh, 12 Stahanovets, or whatever the name was. Basically, there's a story about 12 guys who, under the blockade of Leningrad, when it began, the whole battle, they basically ran out of ammunition to fight off Nazi tanks, and then they just threw grenades, like laid themselves down before the enemy tanks and blew themselves up, and they all died. There's a little problem with these everyone dies stories. If everyone's dead, then who is telling the story? So whenever someone tells you that uh, in this story everyone's dead, then how do you get the story out? I mean, there must have been a bunch of them in history, but we don't know anything about them. The reason being that everyone died. What now? The bridge of death and the watching over the stuff, probably, you know, I bet some people could have gotten damaged, uh, The I bridge think. of death did happen. People did go there and watch the explosion, well, the after-explosion effects, which were, and I will tangent here a bit, because that's also not mentioned in the list, the light effects, the ghostly column of light after the explosion, that did actually happen. According to the eyewitness accounts, it wasn't quite so dramatic as in the series. It wasn't a straight-up pillar of light extending to the clouds. It was more of a bluish-white glow over the burning core. And yes, people did go watch it, and some of them got severe radiation sickness. And it's likely that some of them also died later, but it's definitely not the case that everyone who uh, stood on the bridge uh, during those first couple of days died or even got severe sickness. Another thing about radiation sickness is in the one in Pripyat, and that's the point three here. As the article claims, in fact, on average, residents of Pripyat received an average dose of around 30 millisieverts. But the same as three whole-body CT scans due to the late warning of the ranger, which is actually pretty uh, consequential because, you know, getting unwanted CT scans is bad, and that certainly did lead to increase in cancerogenic stuff, but it wasn't nearly as dramatic as the first responders, I think. Yes. And also, you know, if your body absorbs radiation, it does not really give itself out. One thing the city's got completely right, though, was that if you remember the scene with the nurse, then the nurse that is belittling the older doctor is supposed to represent all the doctors and nurses with modern education, in fact, the old ones still applying folk treatments. And they specifically, by the way, mentioned Paul Stradnich Medical University, which yep. is the top-notch. Like, in the Soviet Union, we are proud to host the top-notch medical university in the whole Soviet Union, the Paul Stradinch one. Moscow and Petersburg didn't have anything on this, and it's still active today, and, well, it might sound weird, but 
currently people from like the Netherlands or Germany are just coming here to study medicine. And my grandmother was one of the people who studied directly under Paul Stradinch himself, because he was a master at this whole medical thing. He's considered to be wildly the one of the best doctors USSR ever produced. So in the series, it was supposed to represent this older generation without proper training and proper schooling, and the nurse was supposed to represent people coming from, well, mostly these parts, because, hey, if the Soviet Union wanted some really good doctors to happen, they would send them to Paul Stradinch University, because that was, like, one of the top-notch places to learn medicine. However, about these doses, yeah, surely... The stories about the firefighters' clothing, that is true. The story about the firefighters' story is not only true, those clothes are still there in the basement of that hospital, and they still give out enough radiation that spending 10 minutes around them significantly increases your cancer risk and touching them with your bare hands is about one of the stupidest things you could do in Chernobyl or surroundings. The only thing that's more radioactive than them is the occasional graphite piece still playing around somewhere. Oh, and when you're talking graphite piece, we're talking about microscopic particles, because radiation sometimes cannot penetrate your skin, like in the case of Litvinenko, and uh, was it alpha radiation? I think it was yeah, that one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the alpha radiation. The thing is, if you, like, it's totally safe to go to Chernobyl, as long as you don't breathe anything radioactive inside yourself. Yes. Then you'll die a miserable, slow, painful death. Yeah, because, um, well, the graphite, as the series very well showed us, the graphite only came from the core itself. That's the only place in the reactor where there is any graphite, so every tiny speck or dust mite of graphite is incredibly radioactive to this day, and the region around the reactor itself, they're still there. You can accidentally breathe one in, you can take one home in your boot or whatever, and yeah. Same with the clothes, the scene where the nurse touches them and an hour later her hand is in red rashes and burns, yes, that's accurate. Low-grade accurate radiation burns are definitely a thing. She probably didn't get anything more than that, but uh, yes, that is accurate, and yes, the clothes are still there, and please don't go looking after them. In the same vein, uh, one of the highly emotional scenes, as the article also points out, we can see the pregnant wife of a firefighter visiting her husband suffering from, you know, acute radiation syndrome in Moscow Hospital Number 6. The, even the article says that this happened, yes it is, and that's one of the numerous first health counts, which I've actually used in the show previously, and uh, the series draws from Voices from Chernobyl by the Belarusian journalist and Nobel laureate Svetlana Alexeyevich. But the drama implies that the baby absorbed such high doses of radiation from the husband that it subsequently died. See, the thing is, the United States doctor who helped treat the plant workers and firefighters says that the patients didn't present a significant radiation risk to staff and visitors. The thing is that, while they were put into these rooms, it was mostly for their own safety because they had lost all of their immune system. They're not standing behind plastic sheets because they present a sufficient danger, it's because everyone else presents a danger to them. However, like in the last part, we do not know if they have been sufficiently cleaned from the particles that you can breathe in, because, you know, you really can't wash off someone thoroughly if their body is just here's hurting. And yes, shit. here's the thing. Radiation doses as high as those people received after the initial period, which uh, has the lovely, lovely name of the walking dead stage, because for a time it seems that you're alright and recovering and then the breakdown starts. After that stage, after the radiation sickness hits the fatal last stages, uh, the body is literally breaking down 
there is system-wide necrosis and uh, liquefying of tissues, and every touch of anything represents excruciating, excruciating pain. So it's likely that they were not thoroughly scrubbed and rinsed and washed because they could not withstand even light touch to their skin or whatever remained of their skin. And it is possible that their bodies still held some graphite dust in the remaining hair. Or they would have not presented a risk if thoroughly washed. Yes. But, but that could not be achieved, number one. And yeah. number two, which is uh, the harsher reality when it kicks in, is that surely the series exaggerated the, the speed at which massive death occurs. Somewhat, However, yes. they massively played down the pain and the damage. Yes, when uh, the dude has no face anymore, yeah, he probably would be dead by this point because, like, they really toned down the damage the radiation does to your cells and your body. Otherwise, it would be on the disrespect. They even said this in this podcast because they, they toned down the effects not to, not to play on the, the gore and not to kind of, you know, disrespect the people. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And to explain this, uh, Aretz has found out for us the exact stages of what exactly happens to you when you get a massive uh, lethal dose of radiation, which will bring you to your extremely painful demise. Please. Uh, as all good things, it proceeds in stages, commonly denoted stages A to E. Stage 1 is radiation burns and chronic somatic damage, of which the lighter part we saw in the nurse after handling the firefighter's clothes. This is rash and symptoms similar to thermal or chemical burn, so blisters and 
painful rushes, which if the dose is low enough is the only thing you get. If the dose is however not low enough, then the next stage is what's called the hematopoietic syndrome, basically caused by your blood generating systems, so spleen and bone marrow gradually shutting down. So what starts is hemophilia, difficulties with blood clotting, uh, there are bruises forming instantly, the immune system starts shutting down due to the death of white blood cells, and this is the stage where your life for the first time becomes actively threatened, not just because of the radiation, but also because of infections that can suddenly run rampant in the absence of a fully functioning immune system. This can be treated by both uh, medication and in harder uh, cases uh, bone marrow transplants, which are more common now than they were back in the Chernobyl days, that's for sure. Ah, good old Chernobyl days. <laughs> Remember them like my three arms. <laughs> However, if the dose is high enough, the next stage, stage C, is gastrointestinal syndrome, which is about as pleasant as it sounds, so constant nausea, diarrhea, also loss of body hair, and uh, for the first time, failure of other organs than your blood-generating ones, so gastrointestinal tract, liver, kidneys. Let's just say that you will not be able to ingest vodka ever again in your life without dying. Oh yeah. Stage D is the so-called walking dead stage, although the technical term is uh, terminal radiation sickness. D stands for dead. D stands for dead. After that stage, even with modern technology, you are largely incurable and were certainly so back in the late 80s. Uh, it doesn't really look like anything except for a short time you seem to be recovering, the pain gets less and less, mostly because of permanent nerve damage. Yeah, uh, this is why you can't feel the pain, because your nerves are dead. Yeah, and subjectively you feel somewhat better, because yes, the excruciating pain has stopped, but that never lasts longer than a couple of days, after which uh, follows the final stage E, which is cerebrovascular death. Which is just well that. Which usually lasts from anything from a couple hours to a couple of days and is characterized by necrosis of your tissues, including your blood vessels, so massive internal bleeding, gradual shutdown of brain functions. Like Gustav said, they can't even inject morphine inside of you because yeah. you, everything you have has just melted out. Yeah, thankfully, if there is anything to be thankful about in a case like this, in many cases, the nerve damage is already so severe that the dying don't feel much pain in the later stages. But yes, this is still 100% fatal, even to this day, if you somehow manage to reach it. After we've done this, I want to, before we touch the point about the massive explosion that everyone was threatened with, I want to talk about the divers, the helicopter pilots, the miners, and the liquidators. The divers, the three men who volunteered to go down there, they actually all lived. Uh, one of them died from a heart attack in 2005. Well, it turns out that uh, water really doesn't transmit radiation as well as other things, so those guys were mostly fine. Not that they or anyone else knew it at the time, they truly were sent to a death mission from which they were not expected to return. Yes. When Legasov in the series claims that they're gonna die a terrible, terrible death, that's what everyone thought. 
not, well, they survived. They outlived the Soviet Union even, and two of them are still alive to this day. Yes. And also, one of them has given the fucking approval of the show too, because yeah, congratulations. Yeah, was, that's that, that was that was the thing. I mean, that is awesome. And, and about the miners, though, about the miners is that yeah, the leak never happened. I and, wanted to, and stuff, to, to add a little something about the divers, the danger they were going into were still absolutely real. They just didn't go far enough into the tunnels because there is a thing called chorite, which is basically molten down stuff from the reactor's core. There's fuel, there's the surrounding metal. Basically, it looks and behaves like incredibly radioactive lava. And there is an object of extrusion of this chorite material just further down the tunnel, except it's around the corner, so the particles can't really get to you that well if you are around the corner. It's called the elephant's foot because it roughly looks like one. And if you saw it at the time, then you, you knew if it was dead. If you saw it, if there was a straight line, uninterrupted straight line between you and the big chunk of extremely radioactive lava, you would have been dead in hours because that was the full radiation dose from an exposed reactor's core. And the miners were something like 50 to 60 meters away from it, only it was behind the corner and they didn't really get much radiation from it. If for whatever reason they went around the corner, they would not have lived to that. They would have literally melted. Well, not, not quite, li well, not quite literally, but close enough. Yeah, so um, yeah. a lot of those mi like divers survived because of water and because of lucky incident. Helicopter pilots all died. You know that uh, the the first uh, yeah the yeah, first those died. Uh, the first crews that were pouring down the decontamination fluids down the, the acetate mixture and the boron and sand mm -hmm. mixture uh, they died from massive radiation doses. The helicopters didn't crash as we mentioned. But with the miners, the thing is that their work would turned out to be mostly inconsequential because yes, there was only forty percent chance of it flowing down, which never happened. However, you know, in this case, it was better to be safe than sorry, Absolutely. definitely. No one None of the surviving miners to this day say that their work was in vain, even though this article which you're reading says that, although their work was in vain, no, no, no. no they no, really thought they were, like, preventing something, and even only for a 40% chance of that happening, they wouldn't take that risk. 40% chance is huge. Like, one interesting thing is that the miners are depicted as being super rash and super, like, brazen in, in the face of Soviet authority, and this is explained by the fact that at that point, Soviet Union depended on its miners. They depended on the coal and everything they mined for their energy needs. So being a miner was a deadly profession on its own because you breathe in all the dust all the time. And at the same time, it was one of the most valuable. Like, those guys got paid, like, a lot of money at the Soviet era. A lot of it. And uh, these guys could actually do that. Except one thing, you know, they make fun of the Minister of the Coal. Except in the real life scenario, the Minister of Coal was one of those guys who actually had been a miner for, yeah. a, for, some, for, for some years. He was a miner first and then a mine director afterwards and yeah. then elevated to he a was, government. He was already a well-respected person. He shouldn't have, like, gotten the treatment he got. Yeah, that was played up for black comedy. And yeah, for, but yeah. the thing, it kind of it showed the attitude of, of the miners towards the Russian bureaucracy and it was an unlucky case in this case because that dude was one of the few ministers that actually did come up from the proletariat ranks and he was basically on the first name basis basically if you would make a character like the brigadier of the miners as the minister it probably wouldn't be good for the show wouldn't show the discrepancies there 
But the guy who was like the coal minister at the time, who's to be very respected and everything, he wasn't a terrible person, he didn't know anything at all. Now we come to the liquidators. Those guys who went up for 90 seconds, which was supposedly strictly enforced. The problem is that I went and spoke with people who were there, and uh, even though the city says 19 seconds and that's all you got, a lot of them went up for the second time, or a third time, or a fifteenth time. Because the monetary rewards, like those 300 extra rubles, they matter a lot. What matters more is the fact that your family might be able to visit some western countries, or that you'd get your car faster, your, your car lines would be cut down, you could get a TV or a telephone line sooner too. And the fact is that they were living in the Soviet Union. Not like life there is very pleasant, and they know they're going into terrible, terrible danger, even like robots have died down, but at least at that point they knew that if they would do this, then even the Soviet government would repay them back. And I think that's exactly. the biggest social impact, because I've spoken with these liquidators, uh, like that was my source for my first Chernobyl episode and... Uh, same, my parents knew a uh, couple of them, one of them lived in the same house we lived in, and yeah, the man said that yes, there were people that went on the roof for the fourth or fifth time for Yes, exactly these reasons. Because each time paid you extra. And uh, also the fact that the uh, the guys from the Afghanistan war, I like how those are taught in the series, like placed in the series. The disillusioned, utterly like broken soldiers with the new guy, you know, being there to, to uh, show Here, however, is yeah. one thing I would like to mention from my own, which is not mentioned in the list. This is about the animal liquidation, animal control, which, yes, definitely happened, but most of the workforce were uh, actual conscripted soldiers. I'm pretty sure there might have been a couple of young green lads, but this was not the usual case. This was something of an exception. Most of these animal control brigades were composed of conscripted soldiers, that just received an assignment to go in there and, you know, hunt down every four-legged beastie that moves around. So the show kind of leaves the impression that uh, mostly these teams were randomly gathered around from old vets and young boys. There might have been one or two or ten, but mostly these were professional military people who just received the assignment to go in and clean out the area. Yeah, and that's like, that kind of wraps up the minor mistakes of the show. Also, of course, you know, the famous scientist from the Belarusian Institute, she was supposed to represent multiple scientists, but the show mentions that, so, you know, not gonna dwell on this. The biggest mistake of the show was about the risk of the second explosion, and, uh, yeah, that's the biggest mistake the show makes for cinematic efforts, so we'll get to that in our final part, but in general, like I said, it might seem to you that the show is, like, overplayed a lot, but... You know what? I don't hate the show for the mistakes it did, because, like, another thing is, like, no one would uh, say that Comrade Legosov, a famous member of the Academy of Science, is a true member of the Academy of Science, as no apparatchik would have threatened to throw him off a helicopter. Yeah, uh, even as a joke, that would have been received as being in a very poor taste, and it's likely that the member of the receive a reprimand afterwards. Yeah, because Comrade Legasov, in his position the Soviet era, is not an underdog, he's one of the top party dogs. He was very downplayed. Also, in real life, Legasov had wife and kids, which makes the story even more tragic. Because yeah. he did hang himself, and because of his hangings and everything, his uh, manuscripts did spread out the Soviet era. 
except that his wife and little kids got persecuted for this by the KGB, which uh, the series didn't choose to show because that would make it extra tragic, but that's what happened in real life. Yes, he had a family. But Konrad Legasov was a very esteemed man, and he could have just turned to this party apparatchik minister or not and say, hey, dude, do you know who I am? And that would have worked. Yeah, pretty That's much. the thing. Again, we love this show, we enjoyed this, and uh, we watched this with a guy who knows all the technological parts of it, and uh, as far as I know of, they even used the correct uh, dozen matters and, and all, yeah, all the correct shit. Yeah, according to my friend and colleague who's all about old military technology, old military hardware, <laughs> we spent uh, the, the evening pausing the video every 15 minutes or so, so just uh, he can point his finger at the screen and say that, yeah, this and this, that makes sense, they, they would have used that back in the day, and given his huge knowledge and collection of said military hardware, I trust his judgment completely. Yeah, but like, just to say no, we're not dissing the show in any way or form. We're nitpicking for nitpicking's sake and just to bring a bit Absolutely. more clarity. Yeah, that's about it. And then, uh, well, yeah, we were just talking about the fact that uh, the last episode of Chernobyl came out in the 3rd of June. Well, I was a couple of months later watching it. I was being busy shelled in Ukraine at that time. Um, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, but like, uh, coming out in 3.06, well, not good, not terrible. But uh, biggest issue is the secondary uh, explosion that was like threatening the show. Because yeah, like the article says, the reactors aren't nuclear bombs. And you have to understand that the explosion in Chernobyl was not a nuclear one. It was a steam explosion that carried nuclear particles, like radioactive particles everywhere. Exactly. And the secondary explosion did not threaten another nuclear explosion, it would just be a bigger steam explosion, not a fully nuclear one, and the radius would probably, you know, not be as huge or the effect as large as presented in the series, they would still render a huge amount of land completely uninhabitable. Uh, yes. But if it would actually be a nuclear blast, then, uh, yeah, we, we'd all be dead. Uh, the biggest problem with the secondary explosion, if it were to happen, would be not so much the force of the explosion or even the particles spread ground side, but the radioactive material penetrating the ground and contaminating the river, which would have caused large swaths of land in the coastline becoming more or less uninhabitable. Uh, but still, yes, the explosion effects and size, and especially nature, well, they didn't say in the series that it's going to be a nuclear explosion, but it gave off the impression that this is going, especially since they expressed it in TNT equivalent, it kind of left the impression that it's going to be a nuclear explosion, which it wouldn't have been. Because Reactors don't work that way. And one thing they left out of the show, though, that's interesting to me, is the fact that uh, at the same time in Kiev and in Minsk, didn't show in the show, is like when um, the children's parades were organized, you know, nothing has happened here, we will just, you know, instead of evacuating kids like they actually did in Frankfurt, because of the reactive cloud coming their way, uh, over there in these parts, they uh, just, you know, sent out kids in the 1st of May parade with as if nothing would have happened. At all. And that was their biggest crime. And so the Soviet official number of 37 dead from the Chernobyl reactor is laughable at best. And Absolutely. holy shit, <laughs> why didn't they just put it at zero? It would make as much sense, like no one died at all, because... Oh, yes. 
It is just that what they did was... It's impossible for a glorious Soviet man to die from radiation. Of course, it's only capitalist men die from radiation. Soviet man is immune to such fucking wonders of technology. But you thought the negligence was shown in the series? Nothing yet. Nothing. Uh, they could have just, like, shown other things too, because the the negligence level was underplayed as the same as radiation sickness disease, because the, the levels of negligence, if you haven't listened to my previous Chernobyl episodes, please do, the level of no one giving a fuck about how everything was built or operated was other things uh, underplayed in this show. It is frankly unimaginable, more or less, by modern standards. But yes, please listen to the previous Chernobyl-related episode, which uh, goes into detail into the declassified documents, because I myself consider something of a, a fan of radiation-related stuff, both scientific and industrial, and I don't have any illusions about the Soviet level of doing things, uh, but there were things that stunned me, and we have a nice uh, term for that in the Russian, uh, called Rukozhopi, which means the state of hands growing out of your ass. Uh, and those documents represent such a level of this phenomenon that I wouldn't have believed were it not for the fact that I could read them. When the KGB become the good guys who write to Andropov when the station is built in 1979 about the fact that, oh my god, the level of Rukozhopi has reached its maximum capacity and it cannot go any further. We're talking about Chernobyl pipes having 10 centimeter discrepancies between like this is where liquid is supposed to go and enter the other pipe and between those two pipes we have 10 centimeter gap. Yeah, yeah it's like the, the show did a really good job and uh, even though they missed some of the details and overplayed others, it's a really valuable show. So, well, yeah, we try to mend their errors. We try to mend their 10 centimeter gap. I hope that we succeeded and that, well... Life in the Soviet Union was always full with fun and entertainment! Oh, clearly. But yes, if you haven't seen the show, please go and watch it. It is really good. It is... I would agree to Christoph's assessment that it is about as good as you can make it while not being straight from here and having access to all the experience firsthand. Oh, and all the hidden documents of the KGB, which is... Yes. Uh, yeah, obviously. So, yes, if you haven't seen it, Go watch it. Unlike the radiation dose, it is actually great. Okay, guys. So, thank you for this episode. And, uh, well, I'll be up there on Saturday or on Sunday. I have something special for my Patreons. If you're not a Patreon still, and if you have PayPal'd me any money, please do email us at theeasternborder@gmail.com because I have gotten some PayPal donations, but I can't find your email there because how the system works. So I can't send you the link to our short story reading. So please don't be, you know, uh, angry about that. Just email us if you have PayPal'd us some money and you'll get your link to the short story reading. There's more incoming, and also, if you're a Patreon, then, well, thank you for that, and please do, please do become one. But yeah, well, I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you.
This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 